Hi, and welcome to the Sage's Cabin podcast. I'm your host, Rox Madeira. So grab a cup of tea and come and join me in the Sage's Cabin as we chat about everything from herbal gardening, herbal medicine, movement practices, wild food, postnatal, and just general well-being. So I haven't actually podcasted for a while, um, and as you might have noticed, we've changed the name of the podcast to The Sage's Cabin. Um, so at the moment, I've been busy uh, organising the Scottish Wild Food Festival, which is happening in September the 18th and the 19th. And so the next few podcasts that I'm going to be doing are going to be with facilitators and workshop providers and storeholders that are coming to the festival. So it'll give you a little bit of a flavour of what's happening at the Wild Food Festival and who's going to be there. Lots of um, artisan products and lots of really interesting people who are doing a lot of things with wild food and herbal medicine. So I hope you enjoy the next podcasts. This one is going to be with Charlotte Flowers from Charlotte Flower Chocolates. Hi Charlotte. Hey, how are you? Very well, how are you? I'm good. Um, we're really excited to have you joining us for the Wild Food Festival in September. So we just want to have a wee chat to talk about you. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your business, your business values and how you got into making chocolates. Okay. Um, well, I'm looking forward to the, to the festival as well. So, um, and i um, really glad it's happening this year after, uh, after everything we've been through. So um, my chocolate making business, I um, have been making chocolates now for a, 12, 13 years, and I started out making chocolates with the uh, intention of exploring um, using wild flavours with chocolate. So I didn't start out as a chocolate making business and then switch to wild flavours. My my inspiration was to try and uh, capture wild flavours in chocolate. Um, and I've always been a bit of a forager um, and I've always loved chocolate. <laughs> but um, it was the sort of bringing, um, coming together, really, um, of the two things at a time in my life when um, I needed to find work. I'm in a rural area. Um, finding a job would have, a new job would have meant commuting um, an hour each way every day, which I didn't want to do teenage kids, blah, 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 whole thing. So it was, could I start something from, from home? And chocolate is really low investment. You don't need a huge amount of expensive kit to make chocolate. So you just need to learn skills and, um, and, uh, and proceed from there. So it was easy enough to do it from, I started in my kitchen and then very quickly grew out of that. Um, and moved into, couldn't find premises locally. Um, that's a real problem. Um, there was just nothing that I could rent um, or, or that was a, a suitable premises or uh, in a suitable place. So we converted a, a room in the house. So I was very fortunate to have that space um, to be able to make a workshop in house. And I'm still working in that space. I'm speaking to you from it now. Um, the space is... Um, is 
cramped and uh, it's uh, we have I have somebody working with me a couple of days a week and we have to sort of dance around each other um, and um, and we sort of know we've worked each other with each other enough over the last four or five years to know exactly where the other one's going to be so <laughs> it's, we just do move around um, and it is a bit of a dance but um, it's the rest of the house is full of packaging um, so there's packaging in cupboards there's packaging behind sofas there's packaging <laughs> At the tops of the stairs, packaging is um, is just ugh, there's so much packaging. You 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 know you have to buy everything in bulk. So there's mm, yeah, of packaging everywhere. So but, um, what was it that, that actually drew you to chocolate? And can you just talk to me about about chocolate and like how it's made and how you would identify yeah. some good chocolate? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, chocolate is fascinating and um it's an extraordinary foodstuff and it starts its life in the humid tropics um it's a beautiful tree it's a about the size of a you know like a good sized apple tree um it's an extraordinary tree then the fruits grow on the stem and it's just it's a uh, it's a very productive it's um it, it works under shade, so it likes shade. So it's a great uh, tree that uh, farmers can grow under the forest canopy, um, which ecologically is great. Um, and so it, it's, able, it's able to provide farmers in the humid tropics with a cash crop. So it has a really important economic role, um, but it's ecologically not you know, doesn't doesn't destroy forests. It doesn't need to destroy. Obviously, some people do destroy forests and we don't want to encourage that. But actually, the thing that really excites me is that it prefers to grow in shade. So it will grow better um, if it's um, part of a, of, of a forest system. Um, and I find that really exciting. So um, so there's all sorts of stuff about it. And I used to work in in forestry and um, have worked in the humid tropics and have worked, you know, in villages where cocoa was a really important crop. So I've sort of known cocoa in that way. Um, and then as a consumer, um, and then, um, you know, as I said, about 12, 13 years ago, I, I needed to find um, something to do and develop a small business from home. And chocolate seemed, um, well, I don't know, I don't know why chocolate, came to me but it did um and it was very really alluring, isn't it? <laughs> it's very alluring yes it's delicious and <laughs> yeah. you know as you, you soon learn it's quite easy to pick up the skills you know just practice and, and whatever but it's as I said it doesn't require huge investment um but but also even your rejects um aren't really rejects <laughs> you have to do an awful lot to make chocolate unpalatable <laughs> um so you know you, you can um you it's there's quite low on waste it's not like I'm burning cakes or you know making jam that is you know it's or distilling something that's undrinkable you know it there's always somebody will always eat your chocolate um and so it's very forgiving in that way and it's fun to work with um, because because you can do so much with it it's the most extraordinary food and it's really complex it's got incredible layers of flavor and and the other thing that has really worked 
in my favor in starting this business when I did is it was just at the cusp of an absolute revolution in the UK in terms of chocolate. So when I started making the chocolate, um, there were one or two people in the UK who were beginning to make chocolate from cocoa beans. And, um, you know, I mean, literally one or two. And, um, you know, so, but now, well, Scotland has, um, I don't know, four or five bean-to-bar makers, um, really excellent bean-to-bar makers. It has 80 or so chocolate makers. You know, it's it's just, and England, Wales, Northern Ireland, I mean, it's just completely exploded. So there are amazing chocolates. There are people who are working with farmers in countries of origin who are, um, you know what's the word um sourcing cocoa ethically um they it's it's a sort of small scale and feeding this small scale industry there are even people bringing sacks of cocoa over the ocean by sail i mean you know it's just (laughs) it's just fantastic everything is amazing um and it's completely changed it's transformed in the last 10-15 years in a way that has just been really exciting so to be sort of on the peripheries of that, my own work, because I'm, I'm not making a huge amount. I'm not making chocolate myself from cocoa beans. I do a small amount of that, but I don't have the skills for that. You need to do that full time, really, to learn those skills and to, and to get really good at it and, and to make the bulk. Um, but there are excellent people in the UK doing that already. And not just the UK. I get, I get chocolate from... Um, Vietnam that's been converted into chocolate in Vietnam from Madagascar. Um, I've just got some amazing chocolate from um, from uh, the Netherlands, um, which are the cocoa beans have come from um, Indonesia and uh, from cocoa farms that I actually happened to have visited about six or seven years ago when I was thinking about trying to access my own cocoa beans. So it's just a really dynamic um, industry and lots of people really pushing the boundaries all the time. So just there are amazing things happening in the country, countries where they're growing cocoa. So just very exciting. So do you think um, on the peripheries of it? <laughs> do you think with, with all this, this, um, this growth, this change that, that, that there's been, it's had an effect on how farmers grow the chocolates and in, in a good way? I think uh, where farmers have access to these sorts of markets, um, yes, you know, where farmers can access, um, yeah, these markets. Um, but there is a very, very small percentage. I and mean, I think it's very easy to get very excited about this, um, but actually to remember that you know, 95% of cocoa that's grown in the world goes into the big cocoa companies. Um, you know, Cad- well, it's not Cadbury's anymore, is it? But, you know, uh, Cargill, um, Barry Calibo, um, Mars, Nestle, you know, they are, they are buying 95% of the cocoa in the world. So this small periphery stuff in big scheme of things is maybe not making that much difference. There's not much difference as we would like it to. But um, it is changing the scene. It's changing um, the way the way people are thinking about it, and um, and it's a you know it's a commodity. It's a really difficult industry to change. So, um, 
but 95% of the world's cocoa is, is grown by smallholders. So, you know, it's all over the world. So, you know, there, there is potential. So the craft market, the craft sector is small, but incredibly dynamic. Um, and I think we all hope that we're having a bit of an impact on the, the big the big five, they call them, the big, you know, big cacao. Um, but, you know, we all need to, we all need to be, um, as consumers, we all need to be lobbying big cacao to do better. So, um, and, and keeping an eye on what they do and the promises they make. Um, and they make lots of promises, but, you know, you know, we need to be pushing and pushing and pushing all the time to make sure that people are living up to those promises. And you know, do the do the big producers do they do they tend to push for like kind of monoculture farms, or are they do they are they growing? Um, I don't know so much about. So the big producers in so Cote d'Ivoire is the biggest producer in the world, and Ghana is the second, and Indonesia is the third. But Indonesia is the only one I know a tiny bit about. Um, in that um, I have visited a few farms, um, but actually the statistics in Indonesia are that over 90% of the cocoa that's grown there is grown on smallholders and small holdings. So no, they're not monocultures. There are big farms. Um, and in fact, I visited one in Java and he had inherited it, the, the farmer I visited had inherited his farm from his father and his father had cleared all the forests. So this, this cocoa plantation was 25, 30 years old and on its knees, you know, and he realized when he inherited it, that there was just, the soil had no quality left. Um, the, the trees were, were really unproductive. Um, they weren't healthy. Um, they were, always getting a disease and he, he you know he sort of went back to basics looked at the ecology of the species and thought well it likes to be under shade but it's no there's no shade so he started to grow timber trees to provide shade and it, he's improved the soil and he's improved quite a lot of the stock through grafting and he's really brought the you know he's changed the ecology of the, the farm and, and, and brought it back from the brink. So I think, you know, lots more is understood about what's needed. Um, but it, cocoa trees definitely are happier with shade. They will grow without it, but they're happier with shade. Mm, so. That's good. That's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess then it gives people like a kind of almost a double crop or a you know, when you look at these um, Indonesian farms, um, they, 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 so they do this sort of forest gardening. So, you know, you go into their, um, uh, their the, the forest and they've got pepper vines growing up trees. They've got um, bananas. They've got cocoa, maybe coffee, maybe, um, maybe rubber. <laughs> they just have a little bit of absolutely everything. And, um, and you know, um, just dabble, not dabble, because they're, they, they, they're doing more than that, but they're spreading their risk um, and, and keeping this really complex um, system going. Mm. Um, and these are all really useful cash crops. Um, to earn money, to be able to buy medicines, send their children to school, um, you know, build, build 
build houses, whatever. So cash crops are really, really important. Um, and uh, as long as they can grow food crops um, within that system, uh, then it, it, you know, it's, a, it's a great system. Yeah. Um, but I it's, sorry, Rox, go on. No, I was just going to say, I imagine that, um, that the, if you're growing the, the cacao in amongst other trees as well, it's going to change the flavour of the chocolate. Yeah, people say that, um, but I imagine it's probably got more to do with um, it's got more to do with the health of the soil. And well, that's what I mean, because then if you've got like this kind of forest and everything's growing interchangeably, the soil yeah. will be better, and so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. No, and it, and you might be able to support a different variety of cocoa because there are you know a number of different varieties which have different flavors, but the you know huge amount of the flavor comes from the fermentation process so the cocoa beans are fermented from so they're in a pod which is about the size of i don't know a melon but it's a bit longer than a melon and inside there's maybe 40 or 50 of these cocoa beans which are about the size of a, an almond and they've got this white flesh around them which is really tasty very sweet like lychee and um, so they're scooped out with this flesh and left to ferment. And that fermentation process is incredibly important in developing the flavor of the cocoa. So, um, and it can be five, six, seven days long. And then the cocoa beans um, are dried in the sun to stop the fermentation and to dry them out. And in that process, they go from a purple or a white bean um, which is very astringent and really not very tasty, to a brown seed, um, which is um, full of all these amazing chemicals that give us all these complex flavours that we associate with chocolate. So the fermentation process is really, really important. And that's been one of the critical uh, developments um, at the farmer level, um, in smallholding level, is... Um, I think very small holding farmers find it very difficult to manage that fermentation. They may only pick, I don't know, 10 or 20 kilos of beans, and that's not quite enough to get a really controlled fermentation going. So the fermentation is a bit random if they do it at all. But now what people, so that people initially said, well, we've got to train farmers how to do this. And they realized that that wasn't really going to work because farmers never produced enough cocoa to get a good fermentation. So they now have um, developed the idea of community fermentaries. And so as a farmer, you sell your wet beans, you sell your beans, you don't ferment the beans yourself, you just sell the pods and the wet beans to um, the fermentary, which could be a co-op run one or a company run one, or, you know, there are different models. And then there's somebody there who bulks it all up, controls the process, is able to get the drying done um, consistently. And so you've got a really good controlled ferment and the quality of the cocoa that comes out the other end of that is infinitely superior and therefore will attract a better price. Yeah. So all of these developments have been happening over the last 10, 15 years. A lot of learning at that sort of level as well. And now in some countries and in particular, I think it's happening quite a lot in the Caribbean, um, people are going, well, why can't we just make the chocolate ourselves? Why do we have to sell the beans? Why can't we add the value of converting these cocoa beans into chocolate and then sell the chocolate? Yeah. And that's happening as well. So all the skills and investment is happening in the country of origin, which is all brilliant. Um, and that's, that's all happening as well. 
so, so it's sort quite of, exciting. It's <laughs> quite exciting. It is really games, exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is really exciting. Um, and um, and moving towards a much more equitable um, supply chain where there is a little bit more knowledge and power, um, you know, it, it distributed throughout throughout the chain. Whereas the old model is the farmer grows, the 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 government or the buyer sets the price, and um, and it's exported um, and it goes into a huge factory and um, it's all bulked up, you know, and nobody really cares that much about the quality. Yeah. So, and that's what 90% of the cocoa industry is like. Um, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so it's, um, it's, there's a, there's a lot happening. It's, it is quite exciting times in, in some ways. Um, and certainly there is a lot of really positive, stuff happening but it's to say that it's changing the whole sector I don't know if that's necessarily true because 90% of what we buy is still from big companies I suppose though like you know it's every, every little bit makes a difference doesn't it because I think every little bit and every, and every little bit it's the same I think with all food and you know it, the, the, there is a danger that um uh, of elitism coming into this that you know only uh, you know only the rich can buy organic food or only the rich can buy this or you know and and yeah there there is that um and one could say the same i could say the same about my chocolate but actually if we don't buy chocolate then these cocoa farmers <laughs> won't have a product to sell and um and the intricate economics at the farm level of subsistence farmers, and they are intricate economics. You know, it's it, it's it's a finely balanced system, and if they're not selling cocoa, then you know, hopefully they might be able to sell rubber, or they might be able to sell pepper, or they might be able to sell something else. But they, you know, the push and what's happened in Malaysia is that the push has gone to selling palm oil. And so, you know, Malaysia used to be a really big producer of cocoa, and it isn't anymore. It's, it produces very little cocoa. It used to produce fabulous cocoa, very little cocoa. It's now almost all palm oil because you need less labor to grow palm oil than you do to grow cocoa. So if we don't value the labor in cocoa, we won't, we won't have cocoa. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's it, you know, it's complicated and it's... Um, but you know the better the better quality chocolate, the more, the closer you can get to this tighter supply chain um, by buying uh, more directly sourced cocoa. Um, so how, how would like it's another? It's it's a push, and I would always, I would still always buy uh, something with a fair trade label on it because I think the fair trade system um, has a lot uh, going for it in terms of holding some of these bigger companies to account. Um, and they're doing it for us. Um, so I would, you know, I, there's a couple of curvatures that I buy that are fair trade um, certified. And um, I hear a lot of criticism about fair trade, but I, I do feel that they are holding some of these bigger companies to account, which the, the craft sector aren't really. The craft sector are just sidestep the whole thing and um, getting on with their own stuff. Whereas you know the the large the majority of the of of the cocoa sector is big business, yeah. And the more we can push big business to change, 
um, the better, I feel. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we're talking about like, the quality of chocolate. So how would you identify like a good quality chocolate? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, it's... Um, I mean, the, the, basic, the, the basic way of doing it is, is reading the, the label on a bar. So, um, and if they, obviously it's about, um, there should only be cocoa butter in the chocolate. If there's any other vegetable fat um, that isn't there, for example, as a flavoring like coconut oil or something, um, then you shouldn't buy it. It's not, it's not chocolate. Um, uh, if they can, if it can state the country of origin of the cocoa bean, then um, so like Ecuador or uh, Peru or Tanzania or India or whatever. So if it can identify the origin of the cocoa bean, that's an indication um, of, as you know, a, 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 a some sort of quality. Um, if it doesn't have, I mean, you know, the, the, whether it's got sugar or milk in it, isn't such an indication. Um, I think the cocoa, uh, I tend to find with milk chocolates that I prefer a milk chocolate with maybe 40 to 50% cocoa solids. Um, and that usually means, what it means is that the cocoa is good enough to not need smotherings of sugar and milk to make it palatable. Mm -hmm. So if, you, if you've got this astringent, um, if you've got cocoa that hasn't been particularly well fermented or it's not particularly tasty, you know, the big cocoa factories, they just use a lot of sugar and milk and vanilla to make it palatable. So if you've got less sugar, less milk, and it's good, tastes good, then it's probably good quality cocoa. So, you know, so you don't need all that stuff to make it taste okay. So, you know, there's those sorts of indications. If you, um, if they are um, a craft maker, you'll be paying a lot more for the, for the bar, um, but you can ask that maker lots of questions. You know, it's, their websites are usually really informative about where they get their cocoa beans from. They'll tell you more about the process um that they've gone through um and you know you can you know that's what you're in a sense that's what you're paying for um and so you're much closer to the whole um system and whether you like it or not is absolutely and totally personal so um if something is billed as really good quality and you don't like it um that's okay <laughs> <laughs> I used to, I don't like, um, there's a really fancy French chocolate called Varona, which is, um, you know, the one that quite a lot of chefs use and it's very good quality. But I don't like it so much as some other chocolates because it's, for my taste, it's just too smooth and too refined. Mm -hmm. um, and taste is entirely personal. So although it's good quality, I'm, you know, I'm happier with um somebody else's chocolate um and so you know it, it, it and so if you if you find if you if you find you don't particularly like a good quality chocolate um yeah that's okay <laughs> <laughs> these things are all personal yeah. but as I've learned as I've tasted more and more chocolates I've found I know what I like and I, I've I, I like 
particular chocolate makers and the way they approach a cocoa bean. Mm -hmm. um, and it's um, and it suits me, but um, you know, there's no right or wrong about this. It's just yeah. what suits you. So tell me about your chocolate then. What does it? What makes your chocolate unique? Um, well, what makes our chocolate unique is the, is the foraging side of it. Is the, is the fact that all our flavors are locally uh, sourced. Um, not always wild. I, I use sometimes things from the garden. So um, uh, black currants, for example. Um, we have a lot of black currants growing in the garden, and I've been using those. Um, uh, but um, <laughs> our garden is a bit wild, so um, we have. I have a lovely patch of um, water mint in one part of the garden, which I use quite a lot. Um, and the advantage of it is, I, I know where it is. One of the problems of using some plants, um, like water mint, is if it's growing um, in a field in a stream, I'm not quite sure what's in that water or you know what's been eating it or tramping on it. Whereas if it's in my garden. Um, uh, and I know it's it's there's no stock um, wandering around it, then I know it's a little bit nicer to pick. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, um, but we have. Um, oh, I've spent most of um, the last month or so just every day going out and picking wild strawberries, which are all the way through our garden. Um, and I just pick a handful a day, a small bowlful a day and dehydrate them and I'll, I'll make them into something. But, you know, you can't go out and pick a bucket of wild strawberries because they don't, no. they just don't work like that. So, but I've been able to, every day I was going out and just picking a small bowl and popping them in the dehydrator. Um, so now I've got enough to have a play with, maybe grind into some chocolate or, or something. So, um, but, you know, blaberries, I have to go um, and find, um, you know, uh, good blaberry spots. The same with the raspberries. I was finding good raspberry spots when I'm picking Scots pine and to go and find a pine forest. <laughs> so um, most of what I pick is just normally a walk away from the house. So, okay. so, um, so how do you decide on the wild flavours and the flavour pairings? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I have a sort of two standard or three maybe standard ways of um, capturing flavour. So one is in the seasonal chocolates, which is um, by infusing, normally infusing, into cream. So I make, every week we make a batch of um, chocolates with four flavours. So these are the filled ones in a box, the really fancy ganache filled chocolates. And so we do four flavors each week. And so I'm making them today. That's my job today is, um, is this week's batch. So um, I've got some raspberries that I'm just um, macerating in cream and then I'll make a ganache with those. Um, and I'm going to make a meadow sweet white chocolate. And I've got a little blaberry jelly that will go in with that. Um, I've got some wild, um, Wild marjoram, origani, oregano, um, flowers that I'll probably make into a milk chocolate ganache. And I'm going to have a little go with some bog myrtle um, to make a ganache as well. Um, but my notes from last year were that um, I must not over-enthuse it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it goes really, really bitter. <laughs> so, um, 
So, um, so that's what I'm going to do today. So that's infusing in cream or with fruits. It's a little bit more difficult. They're very wet and you have to manage that. So quite often I make those into a jelly. So I've made a blaberry jelly, which I can just put into the chocolate, which is a really nice little, um, so the meadow sweet will be a lovely uh, meadow sweetie white ganache and it's like a sort of rich custard and then with this little blaber jelly in it. So that's quite fun. Mm -hmm. um, so that, those are fresh chocolates. So those have only got a two week shelf life. So those we make weekly and we make them to order. Then the other way I was doing it was to infuse the flavor into cocoa butter. And that works for small number of flavors. It doesn't actually work for, for a, I've struggled with it and quite a lot of flavors I've tried and I just haven't liked the results. But I use that for Scots pine and I use it for elderflower and meadowsweet. And, and then I can use that cocoa butter to make chocolate. So that's how I make my bars and, and thins with those. And then um, I'm slowly um, expanding a range of chocolates where I grind the flavor into chocolate. So I've got stone grinders um, and I've got these, I can just, don't know if I can show you behind here. So this is, can you see that? This is one yeah. of them. Um, and it's just a small tabletop grinder. Um, and I've got it off at the moment because it makes a terrible noise. So I'm just see if I can show you inside. Um, it's got, it's full of chocolate, green chocolate, because I'm trying to make a six spruce chocolate. And I know I'll take that better. Um, and it's not really very good, is it? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, that is, um, that in the bowls, so you've got two wheels on a spindle. And when it goes round, I'll just, you can just see, they just, there's two stone wheels and a stone base, and it just grinds down. So that's how you make cocoa, um, make chocolate. So they, these are for making chocolate in. And so you and grind the cocoa beans, um, yeah. which are full of fat, into a paste, and you just keep grinding and keep grinding until the particle sizes are about 20, 25 microns. And at that point, you don't really feel them and they're completely coated in cocoa butter. So that's how you make chocolate out of right. cocoa beans. So I'm taking it sort of one step further by incorporating um, uh, the, the wild flavor. So, um, sorry, this is falling into pieces, falling off. <laughs> um, the wild flavor, um, be it so in this one it's spruce tips so I've dried the spruce tips and made them into a powder and I'm grinding that into the white chocolate and so the spruce tip particles will be 12 to 25 microns completely coated in cocoa butter and be absolutely part of the chocolate you won't feel them it's not going to be gritty they'll just be part of the the, the chocolate itself um, and and that's been really fun it doesn't work again for everything but um, I've made some gorgeous fruit chocolates and um, mushroom chocolates uh, seaweed chocolates that have used that principle and then so what I'm doing then is I match the flavor with somebody else's chocolate so um, I, I've got a, a, a sort of, I've got a collection of amazing couvertures from different chocolate makers. And whenever I have a flavor, I think, okay, this is quite fruity. Um, I know this chocolate here from Madagascar is really fruity. And this one from Panama is deliciously red fruity. 
I wonder if these would work. And so I nibble a bit um, with the flavor and, um, and, and make a decision as to which one I'm going with. Sometimes it surprises you and it doesn't work, but normally that's it. it's, a, it's, a, it's a good way of making that pairing. So, so that's what we do. And, we just, um, and I've been making leathers, which um, are amazing. And absolutely, I'm sure you make fruit leathers. I just think they're incredible. I just love them and they're brilliant with chocolate because we just cut them into strips and dip them in in mm -hmm. match them again with the chocolate mm -hmm. so yesterday we were making we were we'd made raspberry leather from wild raspberries and then I was um dipping it into a Venezuelan plain chocolate mm, that sounds nice <laughs> yeah delicious so we will have those sorts of things at the um at the festival on our stall um for sale um I've been, uh, I, I made a, a nettle um, leather earlier in the year, which was weird. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I put a bit of mint in because I thought that might um, lighten the flavour a bit. But um, we matched that with a, with a very dark chocolate. Um, and it's quite an interesting uh, result. But, you know, so it's, it's, it's always just a process of... Um, experimentation really uh, that's nice i'm, I'm, of, uh, I'm of a mind that there will be <laughs> sorry tasty experimentation tasty sometimes tasty sometimes not so tasty <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that yeah. kind of brings us on to the wild food festival so as i said you're going to be at the wild food festival in september yes and um, maybe you could just talk to us about your stall that you're going to be doing and the, yeah. the um, workshops that you're going to be offering yeah, so the stall, I will have, um, uh, yeah, my normal chocolate. So whatever I've got, um, the seasonal chocolates in September, um, whatever they will be, um, and my normal stock of um, bars and thins. And then the, the wild chocolates and um, leathers that are, that I will have at that stage. These are all made in really small batches. So they're only ever made at about 40 bars at a time. So, and they do tend to vary a bit through the year as well. So that's a bit, um, what do they call it? Micro batch. So you have to come along and see what we've got really. Um, I can't necessarily predict. Um, so that's, we'll be doing that. Um, and on the Saturday, um, we're going to have a, wild flavor um pairing challenge so i will at the stall basically so i will have um a collection of delicious chocolates um white milk and dark chocolates and um and the idea is that people if they've been on walks or they're they um they have a, a wild food that they want to see if they can pair with chocolate um, to bring them along and bring their wild flavour and have a nibble of these different chocolates and see which one they think works with it. Um, and uh, th and that's, just a, that's just a little fun, really, but just that sort of that process of trying to um, explore flavour in chocolate as well as the flavour, the wild flavour, which, which is what we do. And then on the Sunday, um, we'll do... Uh, a chocolate making workshop. Um, so ideally it would be great if people could bring flavors and we could try and work out ways of incorporating those into chocolate, but actually we just don't have time to do that. Um, the chocolate making process requires more time than we 
than we have. Um, but I will make ganaches, we will roll them and dip them in chocolate and we can decorate them and add people's wild flavors to them if they want them. And then people will take home their chocolate. So hopefully they'll get a bit of a sense of um, what it takes to make a chocolate um, and have some fun um, and take home some delicious chocolate. Mm. I, will be I, I, I did one of your workshops before and I really, really enjoyed it. I've been thinking <laughs> I want to do it again. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, well, I wish I could come to the festival workshops all of them but <laughs> I know yeah I know yeah you and I the same I mean I wish I could just participate in the festival yeah. and um but um as a panther uh, that would be great fun but um but there we go um yeah, another year <laughs> yeah. this year um I will be tied to my stool <laughs> so but it's um it's great and I when we did the one before um way back uh, when was it? Two years ago, wasn't it? Um, it I just absolutely loved it because everybody was so interested in the flavors, and um, it was just such a it was just such a lovely experience. Um, quite often, I'm at food festivals and I'm having to explain all about the wild stuff. Um, but at these, at this, at the Wild Food Festival, it wasn't that. It was just that you know we got over that particular hurdle. We were just into exploring, you know, potential of different flavors, and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. So, yes, yeah. looking forward to it. <laughs> so, um, can you just tell people how they can get hold of your chocolates and just how they can connect with you? Yeah, so I um, I have a website um, which is charlotteflowerchocolates.com and um, you can access, we have an online shop which is accessed through that website. Um, so you can um, buy our chocolates through that. Um, we, sell out, we sell through the post. Um, and I have social media on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, and you can sign up to one of our newsletters. Um, the details of that are all on the website. So, and links to all of that are on the website. That's great. So, yeah. Thank yeah. you for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, no, thank you for um, talking to me and looking forward to seeing you at the, at the <laughs> festival. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Charlotte Flowers Chocolates. So just a little bit more about the Scottish Wild Food Festival. It's happening on the 18th and the 19th of September 2021 at um near Drimmon, near Loch Lomond, just about 45 minutes outside of Glasgow. There is going to be a variety of workshops from chocolate making to storytelling to wild food walks, wild mushroom walks, preserving, fermenting, tea blending, tea tasting, um, wild drinks, wild cocktails, all sorts of things. So it's going to be a really, really good day. Tickets are on sale now. If you go to www.scottishwildfoodfestival.co.uk So it's www.scottishwildfoodfestival.co.uk and the tickets are on sale for the 18th and the 19th of September. So you can book tickets 
um, for the festival which will get you into all the free um, workshops and the talks that are happening but there's also um, additional charges and you can book uh, as well for the various different workshops that are happening so check out the website and hope to see you there and as always if you're enjoying these podcasts please like and share and subscribe and follow me and listen to the future podcast we're going to be talking to other people from the wild food festival um, as we run up to the festival itself you can check out me and my stuff my website is www.roxmadeira.com and i'll be at the festival doing a tea blending workshop